Getting into the UFC for many MMA fighters is the pinnacle of their career. Actually putting enough wins together to get a title shot is reserved for only the best in the world, and actually winning the belt is another milestone inside it. Suffice to say, it generally takes an entire career's worth of work to get to that point, and once you're there, who could blame you for wanting to make the most of it? Fighting through a murderer's row of contenders, then the champion only to have a target painted on your back isn't exactly ideal, but obviously being a world champion comes with benefits, including the ability to often pick and choose your opponent. Often to the dismay of the fans and the gratitude of their bank account, several champions decided to take the fight that would generate the most income, opposed to taking on the consensus number one contender. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and boom, Crypto.com has arrived on MMA On Point. That's right, the world's fastest growing crypto app is now an official partner of MMA On Point. Always wanted to start your journey into crypto or join us using the link Crypto.com slash app slash MMA On Point for a $25 CRO deposit upon sign up. And after reserving a Metal Visa card, start trading and withdraw. More on that later, but for now, here are 10 times champs chose money fights instead of contenders. Number 10, TJ Dillashaw. After the world-shocking performance TJ gave in his title-winning fight against the GOAT Henan Barrow, it really felt like we were about to settle into a new era of the bantamweight division. He was 28 at the time and had just starched the pound-for-pound best in the world, but of course we had to have a rematch, which was replaced last minute, and then rebooked, and by the time TJ was ready to start his title reign, he lost the title to the returning Dominic Cruz. The point I'm making is when he finally got the belt back from Cody Garbrandt, which again we had to have an immediate rematch for, I was at least expecting the start of a long-awaited TJ title reign. But we didn't get that. Instead, he decided he wanted another UFC title and, as you'll probably remember, dropped a weight class to take on Henry Zahudo. Jan, Sterling, Marais all had a case to make for a shot at the belt, which had been in flux due to the double TJ-Cody matchup, along with a season of tough. We needed some stability. Instead, Zahudo blasted TJ, who was stripped of the bantamweight title anyway, after taking EPO to combat the anemia he was facing due to the weight cut. And Cejudo went and did the same bloody thing, capturing the title and facing Jose Aldo, who was coming off a loss instead of taking on any of the one existing bantamweight contenders. The fight fell out and he took on Cruz instead and then vacated the title anyway, when someone like Peter Yan could have been champion three years ago at this point. Anyway, we're back on track now and 135 is popping. Number 9. Randy Leaves for Japan Right around the time it became apparent that having a mixed martial arts skill set was key to success in the octagon, in walked Randy Couture at UFC 13 in May of 1997. He put a beating on the UFC roster with his wrestling, boxing and clinch attack and by December was the heavyweight champion. Awesome! Our first proper heavyweight champion. In this, the dark ages of MMA, let's arrange some super fights, get him some title defenses, make sure to build up the rest of the roster so we can have some challenges peak at the right time. Wait, what was that? Oh, he's gone to Japan. Yep, that unfortunately was the narrative with Randy. Just as soon as fans got excited about his presence in the promotion, he packed up and headed to Japan to take on some of their superstars in a place where mixed martial arts was really on the rise and as a result could make a hell of a lot more money. Unfortunately, he would lose to Ensign Inoue in Valley Tudo, Japan, and then again the following year in rings. Still, I bet he got paid though. Following this, he took a break from the sport to focus on his amateur wrestling career before returning to rings to compete in a tournament. Halfway through, he did make a return to the UFC where he went on to win the head heavyweight championship before he left and went straight back to Japan to finish off a tournament. So uh, yeah, about fighting those contenders, Randy, he did return to the UFC a year later and defend his belt in one of the best heavyweight bouts of all time, but it wouldn't be the last money fight he was involved in. Number eight, Brock Lesnar versus Randy Couture. The arrival of Brock Lesnar sure caused a storm in the heavyweight division. That and there were far too many interim titles being thrown about to keep track of. 
Randy had for the third time won the heavyweight belt off of Tim Sylvia. He defended against Gonzaga, but due to contract disputes was eventually stripped, leaving Tim Sylvia and Nogueira to fight for the interim belt. Nogueira won and was matched up with Frank Mir for a season of the Ultimate Fighter and a title bout. At the same time, however, Randy was still the heavyweight champion, and once contract negotiations were resolved, the UFC was looking for an opponent. There were a few worthy options, obviously Nogueira, he had the interim belt, and the unification match could be scheduled, or even Mir considering he had just beaten Brock Lesnar and was well positioned for a crack at the title, but instead, despite Brock being just 2-1 and one in his MMA career, a fight was booked between himself and Randy for the heavyweight title no less. The fight went down at UFC 91 and sold over 1 million pay-per-view buys and gave a chance for the new attraction Lesnar to get a win over a Hall of Famer like Randy. And that's exactly what he did, claiming the title in the process and beating Mir in the rematch. Things honestly couldn't have gone better for him. Brock has always been such a commodity that this behavior would almost repeat itself after DC KO'd Stipe Miocic at 2.26. Another money fight was almost booked between the two heavyweight titans. Thankfully, saner heads prevailed. Number 7. GSP vs. Nick Diaz with the UFC acquisition of Strikeforce came a whole host of characters into the UFC roster. I mean, it was like Christmas for MMA fans, whose stockings were now stuffed with the likes of Alistair Overeem, Dan Henderson, Jacare Souza, Gilbert Melendez, Luke Rockhold, and many, many more now possible matchups. Among these was, of course, reigning welterweight champion Nick Diaz, whose entertaining style and unquestionable ability to fight had earned him cult status, and a potential matchup with GSP was the first thing discussed on his arrival into the welterweight division. The only problem being, George was hurt. Or was he scared? I can't remember. So in Instead, he took on Carlos Condit for the interim title at 143 and lost a very close and controversial decision, meaning, yeah, unfortunately, he's not exactly the number one contender anymore. But did that stop the UFC or even GSP from making this fight? No, of course it didn't. This is the entertainment business, people. GSP beat Condit and then, despite Nick coming off a loss, faced the Stockton native regardless. Johnny Hendricks had been waiting around for his chance at gold but would have to wait a little longer and fought Carlos Condit on the same night at UFC 158. The event sold 1 million pay-per-views and St. Pierre defended his title, but this wasn't the first or the last time a contender would receive a title shot following a loss. Number 6. Usman vs Masvidal 2 when Kamaru Usman wrestled the welterweight crown away from Tyron Woodley, we all knew he was good. I mean, he completely dominated the former four-time defending champion. He was beyond good. But what we didn't expect was that he'd turn into an absolute monster and almost clean out his division. Well, okay, maybe you did expect that. In either case, after dispatching three challengers in Covington, Masvidal, and Burns, there were still a few more options on the table for the Nigerian nightmare. Leon Edwards had been on a UFC winning streak for six years. Colby Covington had pushed the champion further than any other fighter, but Kamaru Usman instead opted to take the rematch with rival Jorge Masvidal in what was undoubtedly a money fight. I mean, I'm sure Kamaru would tell you himself that that was the easiest matchup, at least on paper, for him to take, combined with the fact that Masvidal had kneed himself into superstardom and the pay-per-view sales would ramp up as a result, and it honestly was a pretty smart decision. But Masvidal hadn't even taken a fight since his last title shot, let alone won one. And there were many other worthy contenders, ones that had been waiting years. He finished Masvidal this time around before setting his sights back on the rest of the division, which was a quick stop to the bank for that one. Number 5. Tito vs. Ken Shamrock one of the original superstars of the UFC and one of its first dominant champions, Tito Ortiz had stacked four title defenses against light heavyweight contenders before his former training partner and friend Chuck Liddell had also blasted through the division and now undoubtedly was next in line for a title shot. At UFC 37.5, the Iceman took on title challenger Vitor Belfort and beat him soundly across three rounds. There was little debate left as to who deserved a shot at the belt. Tito had been holding onto it for two years and Joe Rogan even called Tito into the cage post-fight. He congratulated Chuck but told fans that his next matchup wouldn't be against Liddell, but Ken Shamrock, a man who had been running his mouth and needed to be dealt with. 
To be fair, UFC 40, where the two finally fought, was one of the best events the UFC had ever had, selling over 100,000 pay-per-view buys. It even led John McCarthy to believe that based on the energy of that fight alone, the sport had a future and damn near saved the UFC yet again in its trying years. Chuck also fought on UFC 40 and did his job winning in the first round. So now's the time, right? It's Chuck versus Tito. Well, actually, no. Ortiz, instead of accepting a fight with the Iceman, entered into contract negotiations with the UFC and sat on the sidelines for nearly a year and a half. It was out for so long the UFC made an interim title between Randy and Chuck, which conveniently Couture won. So at UFC 44, Tito fought the new top contender and, uh, well, lost. Then at UFC 47, in what should have been the original matchup two years removed from UFC 37.5, the Iceman got his hands on Ortiz. Still, one rivalry was sacrificed for another when Tito fought Ken, when, let's face it, Chuck was the legitimate number one contender. Number four, John Jones versus Chael. Belief is a powerful thing in MMA. Not only do the athletes obviously have to believe in themselves, but getting the audience to believe in you can certainly open up doors as well. We'd seen Conor McGregor, among others, convince us with the amount of predictions he had made come true, you couldn't help believe what he was selling. Another man who had this particular skill was, of course, the American gangster Chel Sonnen, who had done a damn fine job convincing everybody he was going to go out there and batter the greatest of all time in Anderson Silva. And he did exactly that for 23 minutes until the unfortunate happened. So when he said he could beat John Jones, well, at least some of the fan base believed him or at the very least stopped long enough to listen what he had to say. Apparently, so did the UFC matchmakers because despite coming off a loss to Anderson Silva in the rematch, he was gifted a shot at the new GOAT in John Jones. Now, to be fair, 205 wasn't exactly a stacked division. The list of contenders had grown thin, and although there was some new blood on the rise like Phil Davis or Alexander Gustafsson, nothing that could generate nearly half the revenue that Sonnen could. Plus, I'm pretty sure John knew he could beat him, so this one was a no-brainer. A little icing on the cake for the UFC was a full season of tough with the two as rival coaches, which helped build anticipation for a fight that was a complete blowout. Number 3. Alvarez vs. Connor. The lightweight division has seen a recent surge in popularity over the last few years. Grind stars like Anthony Pettis got their picture on a Wheaties box, but the amount of fan support and exposure just isn't comparable to what has happened since the arrival of Conor McGregor. Now, it is undoubtedly one of the biggest divisions in the entire sport, thanks again in part to the notorious one, but his arrival was met with controversy. Firstly, after capturing his featherweight title from Jose Aldo, he had yet to defend it or even discuss a potential opponent for its defense before he was declaring his intentions to claim a second belt at 155. Originally, he had been scheduled to fight Rafael dos Anjos, the champion who pulled out with a broken foot and would lose the title to Eddie Alvarez before they could fight. Eddie, as the champion, had a lot of options. The undefeated and surging Habib certainly made a case for the title. In fact, negotiations were opened between himself and the UFC targeting a bout with Eddie. Habib even signed a contract but was replaced by McGregor for UFC 205. Yeah, Habib was pretty pissed. Tony Ferguson was another option, also on an insane winning streak and deserving of a title shot, but yeah, Eddie didn't want any of that nonsense. It was red panty night and he knew it, so he took the McGregor fight and in one of the most dominant championship performances of all time, was KO'd by Connor in the second round. Still got everyone paid though. Number 2. Bisping vs GSP Okay, so this is rather a strange one. It was a surprise initially when Bisping won the title, I'll admit. I mean, I remember watching it live and it was incredible. Me and the boys went mental, amazing. Still a surprise, though. A bit more surprising, however, was the decision by himself and the UFC to take on Dan Henderson as his first title defense instead of any of the proving contenders waiting in line. And yeah, there were quite a few of them. Still, it was a great fight, an old rivalry, and giving Henderson a title shot and one last chance to capture the only belt not in his cabinet, I can see why it happened. 
is that fair to the rest of the division? Well, no, not really. But hey, it's only one fight, right? Well, actually, no. Bisping injured his knee and needed time to heal, so he wasn't booked to defend his belt. And then one year later, Dana White announced that his next challenger would be none other than George St. Pierre, who was returning from retirement from a completely different division. I mean, that's an awesome fight, but he wasn't exactly the number one contender, was he? The fight also then got cancelled two months later. Dana even told media GSP would fight Woodley and Bisping Whitaker, only they didn't. The Reaper got injured and, well, let's just say Dana didn't exactly enjoy Woodley's title defense against Damian Meyer, and so he reverted to the original plan, Bisping versus GSP. It topped the bill of UFC 217, where all three champions would lose their title by finish, but it made for one hell of a main event. Number one, Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather. The rise of Conor McGregor was pretty much inevitable, but as soon as he got his hands on UFC gold after dispatching Jose Aldo in just 13 seconds, he was damn near undeniable. Having proved to be the most valuable commodity on the roster, he could pretty much fight whoever he wanted. Setting out to continue the legacy he started as champ champ in Cage Warriors, he jumped to 155 and took out the champion Eddie Alvarez, securing for the first time in UFC history two belts simultaneously. So that was it. Legacy set in stone. Only thing to do now is actually defend one of the belts, you know, like a champion is supposed to. I mean, 145 and 150 55 are pretty stacked divisions. The list of contenders was longer than John Jones's USADA bill, but instead of pick from the roster, Connor instead turned his eyes to the biggest prize available in combat sports, a boxing match with undefeated icon Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, this didn't sit well with the rest of the roster as they watched Dana parade their golden child around the world, selling the biggest fight of all time while two divisions sat idle. He was, of course, stripped of the 145-pound title and eventually the 155 one. He could have taken a fight with almost anyone else but was happy to make the crossover for the literal money belt that was put on the line. And I mean, you can't really blame him. It was actually quite a pivotal moment in combat sports history and look at all that's come of it, the good and the um, bad. But he certainly made no attempts to defend the belts once he had them on his mantelpiece, always an eye on the next prize or promotion record he could break. Just wanted to say a big thank you to Crypto.com for joining the team as an official partner. We're incredibly stoked for the world's fastest growing crypto app to be helping us create the content we love and guide us through the expanding world of cryptocurrencies. If you fancy joining us, you can use the link crypto.com slash app slash MMA on point for a $25 CRO deposit upon sign up and after reserving a metal visa card, start trading and withdraw. This will allow you to buy and sell crypto at true cost and trade with confidence on the world's fastest and most secure crypto exchange. Big shout out and thank you to Max Randall for editing this video. You can follow him on Twitter at Max underscore Randall. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching today, guys. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you in the next one.